Hi there, and welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast from ABC News. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. Our White House correspondent, John Carl, couldn't join us this week. A lot of news going on, but on our other line today, making her debut with the podcast, is our deputy political director, Shoshana Walsh. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me, and I'm happy to make my podcast debut. All right. Well, before we start the show, we got some news to tell you about. You can now find Powerhouse Politics on Google Play Music, so look it up. They are online in the podcast section of the Google Play Music app. In addition to all the other ways you can find us, you can subscribe on iTunes, find us on Stitcher Radio, and you can check out all of the podcasts at abcnewspodcast.com. We have a big show this week. There is so much to talk about. We'll be joined later by Republican political consultant and Daily Beast columnist Stuart Stevens, who has written a novel that, that may prove the truth is stranger than fiction. We'll also chat with Mark Leibovich, chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. He has a cover story out about the chairman of the RNC, the Republican National Committee, Reince Priebus. But, but shush, before we get to that, huge news this week from all three branches of government. Of course, big news uh, out of the presidency and in the presidential campaign. Also, a unprecedented uh, sit-in in the House of Representatives by Democrats all around the gun, co- gun control debate and out of the Supreme, co- uh, Supreme Court, a pair of opinions dominating the political landscape. Let us start, though, with the week that Donald Trump had, Shush, because he, he started it off by firing his campaign manager, the, uh, the, 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 the notorious, I would say, Corey Lewandowski, uh, gone out. Uh, then he had an abysmal fundraising showing uh, that had a lot of Republicans worried about his candidacy. Uh, and then to top it all off, his big um, anticipated and delayed anti-Clinton speech, as always, tumultuous times for, for Donald Trump. Shush, is he beginning to right the ship or is this uh, is this the beginning of a spiral? Well, I think it could go either way, but let's talk about writing the ship. So the beginning of the week, he fires his campaign manager, as you said, Corey Lewandowski. Wow, that looks bad. It looks like the campaign is in complete disarray. Wait, hold on a minute. He goes on TV, speaks to everybody, and is praising Donald Trump and his children, who were apparently behind the firing. Fast forward a couple more days. Now he has a CNN contract to go on television every day to praise his boss. Doesn't it seem like the circle may have closed now? It's bizarre. I mean, you you can't make this up with with the whole drama around the campaign. And, And then you add to that, that, that fundraising report, which, you know, that, that, that dropped shush around the same time as the, the campaign firing. I talked to a bunch of Republicans who said that was the troubling development to look at the just paltry number that he raised in his first almost full month as the presumptive nominee. It, it's almost like he doesn't have a campaign at all. Right. I, there are days and I hear about this. People ask me about that campaign all the time that is it real? Is it the Truman Show, and one of those numbers that if you pull out just seems almost unbelievable, is that one out of six dollars went back to the Trump organization, the Trump family, to Trump properties. Uh, and today he's saying that he wishes he didn't have to pay them back, but of course campaign finance rules make him do, do do that. But I mean, is he benefiting from this campaign? And it, and it seems in many ways um, not just politically. Yeah, and, and then you've got the anti-Clinton and this this speech where he reads the laundry list of, of uh, you know charges and allegations against Hillary Clinton, some of it veering well into conspiracy theory territory, but some of it potentially effective, shush. I mean, this he, once you get into the messaging of this, and you saw it in some battleground state polls out in the last couple of days, this still could be a close race. And, 
And in, despite the fact that Trump appears to have squandered the edge that he had on, on Hillary in, in locking down the nomination, you're still talking about a guy who's in the mix and, and has, a, a, as we know, an effective message out there. And it's extraordinary, especially when you think he de- he doesn't have the trappings of a usual campaign in any way. Ground operation, field staff, no, not really at all. Yet he's still in those battleground state polls and in national polling. They're mostly neck and neck, which if we look at this whole thing, is probably the most extraordinary part of it, that they are still so close. You talked about those conspiracy theories. And I think that for the people that Trump is talking to, they're happy to hear that. Yeah, it is It is remarkable to see the, 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 the shifting sands of the Trump campaign kind of day by day. And then you have this new element of what happened on Capitol Hill this week. Democrats uh, got fed up, they said, and, and pulled what essentially is a stunt. Uh, occupying the floor of the House overnight, uh, all to try to get votes on gun control legislation that they know won't go anywhere. But it does suggest to me a more aggressive Democratic Party and congressional leadership. Uh, And the timing of the stunt wasn't lost on me. It was the same day that Trump was giving his big anti-Hillary speech. That's where the headlines broke through of this sit-in led by John Lewis, civil rights icon, hero, uh, putting Paul Ryan in the really tough position. Democrats uh, seem to be suggesting that they'll be more aggressive. I wonder what that means for the Clinton campaign to have uh, the kind of air cover that you might get from Capitol Hill. Well, I think it's good news for Hillary Clinton. And I think it's also interesting that we've been talking about this campaign and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton every single day for months and months and months. But actually, the spotlight was taken by another branch of government, by the House, which is extraordinary when you think about how much we talk about 2016. But I, I like, Rick, how you how you talked about the two aligning with each other, that the House uh, coming uh, together on an issue that could help Hillary Clinton. And the flip side of this, though, is that you have the Republican Party united again. It, it struck me that Paul Ryan... Uh, even as he is pilloried in the interviews and having a hard time explaining why the House is spiraling out of control, there's almost nothing better you can imagine in terms of uniting his conference and maybe the broader Republican Party than the spectacle of Democrats occupying the floor of the House. This may be the best thing that's happened to the Paul Ryan speakership uh, at a time that he really needed it, given the fact that he's being peppered with questions about Trump every day. Right. It's a good way for Republicans to back up the person that's heading their caucus at a time where where Paul Ryan is really being attacked by everybody. He can't make a step without uh, not only being asked about Donald Trump, but being asked about how can you support somebody that you disagree with on every single issue. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, th- these Democrats are not only helping Hillary Clinton, but it seems like they're helping the party, too. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we will chat with Stuart Stevens, the veteran Republican operative who has written a book that tries to take on Donald Trump in fictional form. There's a new answer for people in need of serious pain relief. Lidocare has created a -a one-of-a-kind pain relief patch that blocks pain for up to eight hours. With the only non-water-based lidocaine patch on the market, Lidocare uses patent-pending technology to desensitize aggravated nerves for an odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry, and light solution to pain. The Lidocare Pain Patch from the makers of Blue Emu. For long-lasting relief, you can wear. Available at CVS. 
Hey, it's Rick Klein again. I just want to remind you about abcnewspodcast.com. If you're looking for a new podcast for your commute to work or something else to listen to while laying out at the beach or on the treadmill, you can find it at abcnewspodcast.com. ABC News has a whole collection of podcasts. Check them out. Tell your friends. Again, abcnewspodcast.com. Let's get back to the show. And we're pleased to be joined right now by Stuart Stevens, veteran Republican strategist, a former top advisor to Mitt Romney, and of course, an accomplished novelist. And, and Stuart, I want to talk about your new novel in a second, but let's start with the lay of the land right now. You've been uh, outspoken in uh, in the, the so-called Never Trump movement and, and looking for that alternative, looking for another way for a Republican to go. Is is Never Trump dead? Will there be or will there not be at this point an alternative to Donald Trump, a conservative alternative to Donald Trump? Have you given up hope on this? Well, look, I think until Donald Trump has a nomination, uh, one thing we've learned with Donald Trump is all things are possible. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I, I think that the, it's still a possibility that, that the convention could go in a different direction. To me, it would seem logical if it went in a different direction, it would go to Ted Cruz. He came in second. He has second most delegates. Um, but uh, I, in all likelihood, he'll be the nominee. Are there stirrings for Cruz? I mean, is this a realistic thing to, to suggest that despite winning millions more votes and having that, that outright majority of delegates secured, everyone else dropping out of the race, that you could actually – engineer this and, and, and find a way, a mechanism to give this to someone else? Is Ted, is, is, is Ted Cruz that person? I don't think that there's any way you could uh, you know, engineer it or stage a coup or anything. I think that the, the delegates themselves, majority of them, would have to come to a conclusion that they didn't want Donald Trump as a nominee. Um, that's probably unlikely. But there's no machinations behind the scene that could pull that off. It's it's pretty much straightforward. You know, I mean, conventions are just like a big, you know, bowling league meeting. People are going to vote, and they're going to vote for the rules they want. And they're going to people right now. Uh, every reason to believe majority would still be for Donald Trump. Sir, we say we get through the the convention. I, I, I was talking to the third party folks. They told me that you're actually an informal advisor to them, and that they say they're going to have a credible third party candidate right after the convention. Do you think that that's really possible at this point, or is it is it just kind of more more talk to stop him or undermine him? Um, I think that uh, there's there's you look at the numbers. There's clearly a desire for an alternative in both parties. Um, you know, I, 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 I spoke to uh, some of those uh, involved in that effort and just kind of tried to give them a sense of. I think, frankly, the enormity of the task, having you know done uh, a number of these, um, I don't know who they're they're talking to. Um, but listen, I think choice is good, and I think uh, if if someone's there and he's credible, um, uh, or she's credible, I, I I think that would be positive. And just to kind of switch the topic just a little bit, but Paul Ryan, he's in a tough space. Uh, because he's obviously endorsed Donald Trump, but almost every day we've seen that Donald Trump has said something that 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 Paul Ryan has asked about, and he's had to say, "Well, I don't agree." Where do you see that relationship going forward? I think you said it right. I mean, Paul Ryan's just in a very difficult position because he's um, not representing 
Paul Ryan in this uh, alone. He's representing uh, the entire House and the caucus and has a lot of responsibilities uh, to juggle. Um, I'm glad I'm not having to do that. Uh, I, I have tremendous respect for him, and I think that we're in uncharted waters here, and he's, like everybody else, trying to feel his way, um, but that hasn't been shy about speaking up when he disagrees. So, Stuart, I, I want to talk about your, your new novel. Uh, congratulations, on it, first of all. The, the Innocent Have Nothing to Fear, which I, I love the title, just for starters. And, and you've got a, a, a Trumpian character in it, uh, a character who is, uh, is, is running for president on the Republican side with really harsh uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric, uh, kind of a bullying personality. It, 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 I, I'm curious the timeline of this uh, of this character in your mind. Did you have Trump in mind, and has Trump out-Trumped your character uh, in terms of the outrage factor? I mean, could you could you even make Trump up in fiction as you appear to have tried to? Well, you know, I started on this novel uh, back before the Romney campaign, um, and finished it up uh, well over a year ago. So it was really before Trump, um, but. The, the fault lines in our politics, uh, particularly in the Republican Party, this focuses on, have been clear. Um, my thought when I was writing it was uh, I wanted to write this dark comic novel and uh, have fun sort of pushing things to the extreme um, right up to uh, a, a point uh, where obviously they, they wouldn't happen, but they could happen. So, I mean, as it turns out... Um, you know, uh, reality uh, has been more uh, wacky than I would have imagined. Um, I mean, my my favorite moment in the primary was when Donald Trump was attacking the Pope in South Carolina, one of the most religious states in the country. I mean, if you and I were writing a show or a novel or something, we said, "Look, what if the what if the candidate attacked the Pope?" Like, no, come on, that's like yeah, right. too much. Nobody's going to attack the Pope. I mean, give me a break. But, uh, you know, Donald Trump did right after he called George Bush a war criminal, and um, he still managed to win the South Carolina uh, primary. Donald Trump has taken you on quite directly on Twitter. What do you think of that? I mean, do you enjoy it? Do you hate it? What's it like? I, you know, um, I have no idea why Donald Trump does that. Um, it doesn't get him any votes, and he's in one business getting votes. Um, you know, back in the Romney campaign, uh, he endorsed Romney. Uh, that was great. Um, we really saw it as like a business guy from Nevada right before the Nevada primary endorsing him. Um, and you know, he, he wanted to go on the campaign plane and we said, no, we, thank you, but that's not going to happen. Uh, he wanted to speak at the convention and we said, no, um, and he was actually good about that. He didn't uh, kind of go crazy or lash out. So I don't know if he has like some res- you know, residual resentment against that. I've read that he said that you know he could have won Florida for Romney. Um, I don't know, but you know he, he gets. This is someone who has deeply held and and thoughtful opinions about the view. Uh, television show. I mean, <laughs> sure. you know, I mean it, it, what he spends his time thinking about and doing is just a constant source of amazement. He just seems to watch television and look for any slight about himself and then respond. 
Yeah, but so let's get into that for before we let you go here, Stuart, because I do think a, a lot about that moment, and it was a surreal moment. And I think Mitt and Ann Romney even said it was it felt surreal to be there with Donald Trump in Nevada, Trump Tower, the the, the curtains and everything to accept that endorsement. Does any part of you? You talk about these forces that have been building in the Republican Party for a long time right now. Does any part of you wish that? Mitt Romney and that campaign had confronted that. This was after the birther stuff. We knew what Donald Trump, we didn't know quite everything about Donald Trump, but we knew what he was tapping into. You knew what he was tapping into at the time. Could something have been done inside the Republican Party years ago, either the Romney campaign or, or in that era to say, no, this is not what, what the Republican Party represents? I, I think those things are, could have been said more, um, probably should have been said more. Um, by Romney, I, by others. I mean, who 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 would have well, been in a position I mean, to do by, that? By by everybody. Um, but you know, um, uh, Mitt Romney was was you know quite clear and outspoken about the birther stuff, um, and you know Donald Trump was a guy who had these opinions. I mean, he's not an elected official. He's like somebody calling up talk radio. I mean, as it, which he loves to do, and offering up an opinion. Um, I just don't think it seemed necessary to go out and disagree with Donald Trump. I mean, he's just someone who's trying to get attention in a way you could give him more attention. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, someone endorsing you doesn't mean you endorse them. As, as you know, Mitt has pointed out, uh, you know, over 60 million people voted for him. That doesn't mean he thinks that 60 million people are qualified to be president. Um, and clearly, Donald Trump has taken a darker turn in this race um, than he had evidenced even before. Uh, the stuff about Muslims, the stuff about the judge. I mean, it's just a constant uh, pattern that he has now. Um, you know, this is someone who, who was, as you well know, I mean, this figure in New York who dined out on uh, attention from the media. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton was happy to go to his wedding. Um, so it wasn't that he was a pariah, um, big donor to the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. He was just sort of a character, um, uh, sort of flamboyant, uh, somewhat ridiculous, but, you know, uh, character. And I think it's very different. You start looking at it like, oh, okay, what if this character uh, was commander-in-chief? What if this character was the most important person in the world? I think you start putting on uh, d different uh, uh, glasses to look at him and have a different res response to that. And, and do you think that is there any chance of redemption for him in terms of the, the campaign that he is is putting together? Or has he gone too far now for someone like you, many maybe many other Republicans to possibly support? Look, the, the underlying reality of Donald Trump's campaign is his continual uh, appeal, not to the best of us, but in many ways, the worst of us. He's the anti-Ronald Reagan, um, the anti-John Kennedy, um, and someone who uh, doesn't ask us to be better than ourselves. Um, He's someone who speaks to the part of, and all of us have it inside us, that, that, that feels disappointed or cheated or slighted. Um, you know, I've said before, he's a, he's a grievance monger. And his appeal, I think, is he's the guy who's going to settle the score. Um, and I, I understand that. 
And I think that there has been uh, a reluctance to admit how much economic pain and disruption is in the country now. Um, but I, I think that that response um, in the body politic and in our, our sort of social culture is incredibly negative. Um, and is is ultimately against sort of the best of the American tradition. All right. Stuart Stevens, a veteran Republican strategist. The new novel is The Innocent Have Nothing to Fear. Again, congrats on that. And uh, we thank you so much for coming in and joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Listen, thank you, guys. It's great to talk with you. Next, we're going to chat with Mark Leibovitz of The New York Times Magazine. But first, I want to tell you about one of our other podcasts on the ABC News Podcast Network, 10% Happier. It is hosted by ABC News correspondent Dan Harris. And Dan is trying to get to the bottom of meditation. Where do they come from? Does it work? How can you do it even while juggling a busy lifestyle? So check it out. It's called 10% Happier. You can find it on the iTunes Store, Stitcher Radio, Google Play Music. Now, back to our show. And we're pleased to be joined on Powerhouse Politics by Mark Leibovich of the New York Times Magazine. He is out with the latest cover story, profiling Reince Priebus of the Republican National Convention, uh, National Committee. Uh, Mark, what is your sense of Reince and how he's played this? You spent a lot of time with him. He's going to be the man in the spotlight in Cleveland in, in a couple of weeks. How is he processing the Donald Trump era? Um, I don't think a guy like him processes. I mean, it's not really... he's. <laughs> It's not really the job of like a functionary, which is what he is. I mean, he's, yeah. he would be the first to, I don't know if he'd be the first to describe himself that way, but he's he's come up through the ranks of the Republican Party. I mean, he's he's been on every committee, he's been counsel, and I mean, this is, he's a political hack, and, and I guess I kind of mean that in a nice way or a nice-ish way. Um, but he would say, and, and I would probably agree with him, that it's not really his job to make a big principled stand you know, in favor or, or not, not against like someone like Donald Trump. I mean, his job is basically to sort of take whatever um, Republican candidates are on the Republican ballot and, and help them get elected and, and not really think that hard about, um, you know, all of their baggage. I mean, I think he'll clearly be a guy in the spotlight in Cleveland. I think Trump will be, you know, he'll be spotlights one through 100. 100. Um, and Reince, I think, is sort of a perfect foil to to the circus and that he's he's an organization man he's like a bureaucrat and he's he's just the kind of vanilla um guy who has to make it work in the middle of what seems like a really impossible situation as you've seen i mean the whole republican party thrashing against itself and trying to cope with the the, the trump era there's still embers of the never trump movement right. and trying to block him in Cleveland, but from from Reince's perspective and the RNC perspective, is there any soul searching about what they might have done differently? I mean, you talk about the the autopsy report in your piece. Yeah, obviously they were looking for a different a different direction than they've been taken in. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I mean, I, he clearly there was a lot of soul searching after the last loss, and there was actually a an institutionalized version of that soul searching in the autopsy report. Um, what I sense now is is not so much soul searching as almost a pre autopsy. I mean, you have a lot of Republicans that I talk to, sort of talking, you know, with a real kind of gallows humor about either expecting to lose or sort of looking, you know, what could happen after Trump loses if he loses, which is, you know, okay, do we sort of revert back to 
um, orthodoxy, conservatism, does a, does a Ted Cruz, does a Paul Ryan come forward in a few years and say, okay, we've tried everything else, now let's try a real conservative, and I'm the real conservative, and then, you know, Republicans get wiped out again with Hispanic voters, with women, and, you know, the same thing happens. But, no, I mean, there, it, what's one of the kind of interesting parts of this election has been some really, really, I think, deep, I don't know about deep thinking, but certainly a lot of very pointed writing among conservative writers, especially uh, about what the party's all about, about how someone like Trump could have happened and uh, what to do now. I think that raises an interesting point because, you know, I've talked to some Republicans who months ago were even saying that Trump was the worst case scenario in a couple of ways, that one is that they think they're going to lose. Mm-hmm. But the, the other is that it doesn't settle the argument, that you're going to have it this, the this exactly. right? Ted Cruz will be back making his argument. You'll have a moderate forces saying that was the problem, and, and they're going to be stuck in, in for at least another election cycle. Yes. I, I mean, I think if Ted Cruz had won the nomination this year and got wiped out, um, that would sort of scratch that let's nominate a true conservative itch that has been um, you know, in the, very active in the party for the last number of cycles. I mean, they would have said, um, you know, well, John McCain wasn't a true conservative, and Mitt Romney wasn't a true conservative, and George W. Bush wasn't a true conservative. Let's nominate a true conservative. Donald Trump is not a true conservative by any kind of Republican definition of the term. Um, I mean, I think one of the really dangerous parts of him is that not only does he lose the party credibility with, you know, a lot of a lot of evangelicals, a lot of people on the right, but but also it just continues to repel a lot of the the growth markets in American demographic politics. You know, that women and, and Hispanic voters, especially that, that the autopsy report pointed to. So, yeah, I mean, potentially it's a really, really worst case scenario, and I would say that the best case scenario is he's just scrambling the map. He there's just more white voters than we ever thought. There are fewer Hispanic and black voters who are offended by the, him than, than we thought. And, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be a whole different set of analysis that, that has to be made after his unlikely victory. But I mean, I, I, yeah, I, and I think the I think the, the last couple of days have inserted a new level of concern because you put in on top of the the broader issues of you know, what he's what he's doing to the party and how polarizing he is and how what he turns off is that right. the campaign chaos. He fires his campaign manager yep. and and he puts up a fundraising number that would have been okay for a House candidate maybe. And and now it's you know not just that he has a message that many Republicans think is just fatally flawed, but he doesn't have an operation that can possibly compete with Hillary Clinton's. Yeah, I don't know a lot of people, certainly inside the political world, who are surprised that that it's sort of an operational you know, train wreck right now. I mean, that's kind of been the case for a long time, even as he kind of marched to the nomination. Um, what what I think this is, what, what one of the many things that makes this problematic is that as a, it, it puts the lie to kind of the Trump brand, that he knows how to run things, that he's a manager, that he's someone who can fire people and who's decisive. Um, I mean, it look like, looks like this thing has been neglected and sort of dysfunctional for a long time. Um, so, in a sense, that becomes another argument against you know whatever it was that that he was running on in the primaries. Mark, is there anything left to the to the Never Trump movement? There was the, there was reporting out just this week about a letter that was circulated by a member of the RNC Rules Committee concerned about how Reince was stacking the committees and thinking that he might actually be engineering a, a, a Trump coup. You're not you didn't pick up on any of that in your, well, in your discussions. Have I mean, you? it depends how you how you define the Never Trump movement, right? I mean, is, is there actually an organized effort on behalf of a single candidate? You know, whether it's Ben Sass or Ted Cruz or whoever to actually um, 
you know, get in the way of Trump. No, I mean, I haven't seen any proof of that. But, I mean, there are, are huge pockets of, of people in the Republican Party who I, have, I think have no plans on voting for Trump. I mean, I don't know what they're going to do. But they remain, you know, at least very, you know, in, in their own sort of personal, um, you know, in our conversations, very, very committed to not voting for the guy. I mean, I don't know where they're going to go, whether it's going to be Hillary or some third party or staying home or just voting down ballot or, or what have you. But, I mean, I think that, that part's very real, which I think is, is partly over the last six weeks has only become more so just because Trump's had such a lousy few weeks. Uh, the question is, I mean, what form does never Trump take? I mean, I think the, the time for actually an organized effort behind another candidate is probably too late. Um, I mean, but is there objective just chaos in Cleveland, just, you know, active floor demonstrations, which, you know, in, a, in and of themselves can be very destructive? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's per- perfectly, um, you know, possible at this point. Do you think, though, is there any chance that he is not the nominee coming out of, out of Cleveland? There is a chance, sure. I mean, a lot has to happen. I mean, I, I think, you, you, first of all, as, as Reince said, I mean, you need to draw three uh, straights in a row, which is you need a rules manipulation or rules changes, you need delegates to vote in your favor. Uh, and then, and this is probably the first thing, um, you need a candidate. And, and again, no one has explicitly or even implicitly, to my knowledge, come forward and saying, yes, I, John Kasich, or I, Marco Rubio, I'm willing, or Mitt Romney or whoever, I'm willing to offer myself as an alternative if you can actually set up a scenario in Cleveland where um, you know, delegates are, are free to vote their conscience, to use sort of the big buzzword of the week. So we'll see, but I, I think it's highly unlikely. Back to Reince for a second. He is projected an outward calm, I would say, uh, you know, and there's a gallows humor, I think, that you yeah. get at in the in the pieces as well around this. I mean, does he does he view this as a defining moment, a major moment for his party, even from the from the the aspect of being a functionary? Does he realize the larger stakes here? I mean, he's put so much into the party's put so much into this presidential election, and and yeah. you could say you saw the train wreck coming, but you know, here we are. Yeah, he does. I mean, I think certainly in the, in the context of his career, I mean, he will. I mean, if if Trump can somehow win, I mean, it will be. I mean, Brian Priebus will go down as one of the great party chair chairs in history, as someone who could somehow keep all this together to a point where he could actually win an election. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, Reince is smart. He's been around. He knows exactly what's happening. He reads a lot of the same polling. He probably reads a lot more polling than than you know most people are available mm-hmm. of. And I can't imagine they're any good. He also talks to you know Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, who have a lot of you know down ballot polling um, data at their at their disposal, and, and both of them are, are extremely concerned and, and lukewarm towards Trump at, the, at best. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's got to be concerned. I mean, he he'll, his sort of standing line is, well, winning cures all all ills or cures a lot of things, um, you know, whether you put racism or <laughs> or sexism in, in that category, who knows. But, um, yeah, I mean, he, I, I think, at least as far as any outward despair and sort of pulling his hair out of me seems to be saving that for November, if, if, if ever. And, and how has Trump managed that relationship? Uh, it, it seems like Trump has, you know, he's, as he often does, he tweets yeah. about things and, you know, he's back and forth and the whole, the whole deal with the pledge and yeah. he's I mean, toying with him at times. I, I think it seems like he certainly was toiling with, toying with him during the primaries. I mean, the, yes, you, you mentioned the, the pledge. I mean, I think that was um, a classic, you know, why do I need these political hacks for? Uh, I mean, the truth is, though, Trump needs 
the RNC pretty badly right now. I mean, he, he is outsourcing a great deal of his campaign to them, uh, the field operation, the fundraising operation. I mean, a, a lot of this is just on their plate, uh, which even under the best of circumstances, the National Committee is not equipped to deal with, I mean, at least on the magnitude that, that what, what the nominee and or likely nominee is sort of giving them to do. Um, so, I mean, Reince actually has a fair amount of leverage now in which he can say, okay, if, if you just continue to, like, alienate so many people in our party and behave in the way that you have, we're just going to take our money and devote it to, to down ballot. And, you know, one advantage that the RNC has in having a lot of the Trump, um, you know, vacuum sort of <laughs> thrown in its lap, it's a mixed metaphor if there ever was one, but um, <laughs> what, what he does is it gives him the freedom to sort of deploy the resources as he sees fit. So uh, he could certainly exercise that. And that's a really good point. I mean, he, Trump has, has he was saying a couple of days ago, you know, to, to the rest of the party, basically sit down and shut up, or yeah. I might have to do this on my own. But the fact is, he can't do it on his own, right? I mean, you know, he could try. I mean, look, I mean, there, there is, there are indications that Trump um, would love to just tell the entire Republican Party, or at least you know, the establishment that, that's been so hostile to him and continues to be, just to um, you know, just to take a hike. Um, you know, unfortunately, you can't. I mean, there's only so far you can go now because the RNC could actually take him up on this. And again, it's leverage, <laughs> and you know, Trump loves and understands leverage as, as well as anyone. Um, and so, you know, that actually might put a cap on the kind of you know mischief um, that, that Trump could invite. But who knows? You know, <laughs> that's, that's a good good epitaph for the entire. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It should be the kicker on yeah. every story. Who knows? You know. Yeah, who knows? Period. <laughs> the end. All right, Mark Levovich from the New York Times Magazine. Check out his new cover story. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rick. So, so as we said, a very busy week in politics and a lot going on uh, with the campaign. And I'm struck by the fact that even at this late stage, uh, we are now beyond the NBA Finals. The the arena belongs to the Republicans in in Cleveland. They're starting to build the stage. And even now, it seems like there's a possibility, even a glimmer of hope, you heard it from Stuart Stephens, that the Republicans turn to someone other than Donald Trump. Does this seem realistic? You've done a lot of reporting on these Never Trump movements, Shush. Is is this still realistic? I think it isn't realistic, but I think that it does show the level of still shock, possibly denial, that the Republicans have in their nominee. You know, it's presumptive nominee. It's clear that the voters have spoken, but there's a lot of voters that are unhappy and a lot of the Republican establishment that still seems to be in complete shock mode. They can't believe that this is actually happening. And I think it comes from a couple different levels. There's the shock mode of it's Donald Trump who's our nominee. Then there's another wave, I think, that crashes through when you look at the the kind of lack of campaign that he has uh, that he has set up. Uh, you know, you know the numbers. I think he's got about 70 campaign aides compared to almost 700 for Hillary Clinton. So it's not just the the, the fear of a party that's gone in a vastly different and, and many would argue negative direction for Republicans. It's the idea that they're going to get waxed if this guy doesn't put something together. Uh, I just, I don't know that they can do anything about it. I mean, you, you've got, you know, you've got a guy that won this thing fair and square. And it seems like Paul Ryan and his position on this kind of speaks for the party. They're not happy about it, but they have to support him. Right. And I think there's just really a wonderment also about how is this guy even as successful as he has been when he doesn't have any of the usual trappings of a campaign? I mean, how can you 
defeats 16 other uh, Republicans, including governors and senators, when you hardly have any staff at all. I think there's still that shock, even though we're at the end of June. But he would argue that all of this shows his strength, that he's done everything on a different script, that he's remade the rules. And and it's hard to argue with that. I mean, he, right. has, he won the primaries going away in a totally different way, manipulating media, using his brand, tweeting his way through it, not spending a lot of money. He has, he has remade politics uh, for a, a, a much different era right now. I, I guess the only question out there is whether he can keep that going, whether there's something different about the general election. Right. And he's absolutely correct. He has done all this on a very small budget, uh, really, as you said, breaking every political rule we've seen. But it is going to be different going forward. But right now, it's not. I mean, those polls are still tight. These are national polls and battleground uh, state polls. So from his point of view and the small staff's point of view, I mean, they can say that they just want to keep things going. And you got to feel bad for Republicans who are stuck in the middle on this. But I, I but on the Democratic side, uh, Hillary Clinton, there was a tinge to me in her response to Trump of confidence, I, or or maybe, maybe you'll say overconfidence at some point. But she almost reveled in the idea that she, that her critique of Trump got under his skin, and uh, you know she gave a well received speech several weeks ago on foreign policy. She backed it up with something on economic policy trying to take on Trump and his business record. She seems to be enjoying this in the matchup. It does seem, you couple that with the Democratic sit-in this week, the Democrats are emboldened. They've got a sense of confidence right now, a little bit of swagger uh, as we as we kick off the, the hot political season of the conventions. Definitely. And you also saw Elizabeth Warren seeming to, seeming to love that she got under Donald Trump's skin. But I think that even though they might be emboldened and confident right now, I think that the Clinton campaign knows that, that underestimating Donald Trump would t- just be to their peril. Yeah, and, and I think I think they have to realize that there's going to be lots of twists and turns of this campaign. And even though this has been a very rough stretch for Donald Trump, it is such a divided electorate. All right, that is going to do it for this week's edition of Powerhouse Politics. Please take a moment, rate the show on iTunes, write a review, tell us what you think. If you like the podcast, tell your friends about it. You can tweet us using the hashtag PowerhousePolitics. Don't forget, you can check out a bunch more ABC News podcasts by going to abcnewspodcast.com. For Shoshana Walsh, I am ABC's Rick Klein, and we will talk to you next week.